Well, maybe you've had to deal with people who have stupid questions. Today, we're looking at a passage in the gospel where Jesus had to deal with some questions from people who wanted to trick him and to discredit him. And in the course of that, I think we will learn some things about ourselves, some applications that God can use to help us ask better questions. Well, welcome to The Crossing. So glad that you are here. And let's give a big welcome to our Southeast campus, our microsites, and those who are watching online. Welcome. Glad you are a part of us today. Before we jump in, let me tell you about a couple things that are going on. Um, First thing is this, is Darla and I are leading a trip to Israel in November. And this is our third trip to Israel. And one of the reasons why we keep going back is because of what happens at that place, that the Bible becomes real. It just comes alive. That many of you, you've read the Bible for years, but when you see it, when you see these settings of these Bible stories that you've read, when you taste it and touch it, it just transforms you. You will never read the Bible the same again. And when you walk in the footsteps of Jesus, it will grow your faith in ways that a church service will never do for you. We're going to see all the significant sites in Israel. We're going to go to Capernaum, which is where Jesus conducted most of his ministry. We're going to take a boat ride on the Sea of Galilee, where Jesus did many of his miracles. It's where he walked on the water. We're going to go to Jerusalem. We'll spend some time at the Dead Sea. We'll do baptisms in the Jordan River. We'll go to the Mount of Olives the upper room, the Garden of Gethsemane, and we'll finish our trip at the empty tomb. And so the trip is limited, but I would love for you, if you're able to join us, to go on this life-changing trip. It is just an amazing experience. You can get more information out in the lobby today about that. And here's the second thing, is that Easter is just a few weeks away. And this is one of the prime opportunities that we have to invite somebody to church because most people want to go to church on Easter and I want you to begin to think about who you can invite. We have eight identical services over our two campuses. We have two, our regular service times at the Southeast campus are going to be at 10 and 11.30. And then here on our Windmill campus, we have six identical services and all the times change. They start at Saturday at 4 and 6 and then Sunday at 8, 9.30, 11, and 12.30. And here's what I want to ask that if you can do. If you can avoid the 9.30 or 11 o'clock service, that will be so helpful for us. Those are going to be the services that are going to be the most full. So we want to make sure that everybody who wants to come has a seat. So if you could come to some of the early services, come on Saturday or come to our 8 o'clock. I call that our sunrise service. Maybe it's a little bit later than the sunrise services you grew up with, but that's about as early as we're going to go here at the crossing. If you could come to those, that would be great. We'll be doing baptisms after every single service, so maybe you've been thinking about being baptized, that this will be the opportunity for you. We'll be doing baptisms. This is the best day of the year to be baptized, so I want you to think about that. Today, as you leave, we have invite cards that you can invite people and just to be reminded about that. Well, last week, my family went to a bed and breakfast for the weekend. And uh, after we got all settled in, the caretakers of the bed and breakfast came in. They welcomed us. They told us all the details about the house and what was in the surrounding area. And as we got to talk, they found out that we were Christians. And the husband said to his wife, he said, they remind me of the Cathy's. Well, we had no idea who the Cathy's were, but as we began to talk a little bit more, we found out that the Cathy family had stayed there a few weeks before we did. This is the Cathy family that owns Chick-fil-A. 
This was like the nicest compliment that they could have given us. I mean, like, this is amazing. So for the rest of the weekend, we compared ourselves to the Kathy family. When we played cornhole, we said, do you think that the Kathy family played cornhole? Or when we were cooking in the kitchen, we are like, do you think that the Kathy family cooked in the kitchen like we're cooking right now? Well, my daughter-in-law, Becca, she was doing dishes after one dinner, and she broke one of the glasses. Now, in fairness to her, she said that it just broke in her hands. I don't know if that's true or not, but that's her story. That's what she keeps saying. And somebody said, I'll bet the Kathy family didn't break a glass. <laughs> and then one of my other kids said, we are nothing like the Kathys. We had these preconceived ideas of what the Kathy family must be like because we love Chick-fil-A. And I mean, like, this is the Chick-fil-A family. So we thought they must be the perfect family. Here's what we do with God. We have this preconceived idea of who God is or how God should respond or what God should do for us. And we have created this box that we want God to fit in. It's this safe place that we want him to just kind of stay. It's the way that we've kind of interpreted the, what he should do and who he should be and how he should respond. And that is exactly what the main characters of our story today did. In an attempt to trap Jesus, they ask the wrong questions and ultimately they miss the point. Well, if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to Mark chapter 12, that we have been walking through the gospel of Christ and through the life of Christ, and we are coming to the final days of his life. And today, we're looking at three political and religious leaders, three groups who ask three different questions, and they ask these questions to try to discredit and to trick Jesus. So let me start off by explaining these groups. You may recognize some of these names, and you may not recognize some of them. The first group is the Pharisees, that this is the religious group that you're probably most familiar with. And the Pharisees, they had this strict requirement that you had to, you had to do everything in the ritual law, the strict adherence to all the traditions, and they were hostile to the teachings of Jesus because they thought that Jesus was compromising their interpretation of the law. The second group is a group called the Sadducees. They were an influential Jewish sect that denied the existence of the spirit world. And they denied the possibility of a resurrection. Now, we're not talking Jesus' resurrection. We're talking any resurrection that they thought that once you died, that that was the end, that there was no place to go. The third group was the Herodians. Now, the Herodians, theologically, they were in agreement with the Sadducees, but politically they were pro-Herod. They supported this, this family of corrupt kings that oversaw, that ruled over Israel. And they worked hard to keep Herod's dynasty in power. And these three groups, they hated each other. They had their own theological and political agendas, but they had one thing in common, and that was their opposition to Jesus that Jesus represented a threat to each of them, and now they all agree on this one thing, that they must get rid of Jesus. So we're going to pick up the story in Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 13. It says, Later they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. Now they would have never been together any other time. But they come together, and they try to trick Jesus into saying something they will discredit him in front of the people, or more than that, they're looking for a reason 
to arrest him. It says, they came to him and said, teacher, we know that you're a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. But you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? Now, they pretend to be honest and sincere in their questions. They, they use this false flattery to begin to butter them up. They say, you're a man of integrity. Jesus, you aren't swayed by people or power. You teach God's truth. Jesus, you are the man. You're the man. Well, here's our question. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Well, this is an important question because the Jewish people were oppressed by the Romans that over a third of their income would go to income taxes, but then they had all of these other taxes that, that many scholars believe that over 50% of their income went to taxes, and it was this constant reminder that Rome oppressed them. But this is a trick question. Because if Jesus answers no, don't pay your taxes, the crowds will love him. But remember one of these groups, the Herodians, are pro-Herod. And so they will go back to Herod, they will report what Jesus said, and Jesus will be arrested and executed. But if he answers yes, pay your taxes, then the Pharisees will tell the people to stop following him. Because the people were following him believing that Jesus was the Messiah, but everyone thought that the Messiah would overthrow the Roman government, so they think they've got him. They think that they have backed him into a corner. Verse 15, it says, but Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me? He asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought him the coin and he asked them, whose image is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Jesus knew that they were trying to trap him. And so he says, show me the denarius. Now, this is where the phrase, show me the money, came from, right here in the Bible. This is brilliant because he says, I, I don't know whether you have any of those coins, but if you happen to have one of those coins in your pocket, then you are guilty of what you're trying to accuse me of. Because if you have one of those coins, then you've bought into the Roman economy. Well, I actually bought this exact coin when I was in Israel several years ago. I bought on the streets of Jerusalem. Actually, there was this little market on the Via Della Rosa. That's the road that Jesus took the cross on up to Calvary. There was this little market on the Via Della Rosa where I bought this exact coin that Jesus used right here. And on the front is it's a picture of Caesar Augustus. And on the back, it says, Son of God or son of the divine. And the Jews considered this a graven image, that this is an image of someone claiming to be God. And so they hand it to Jesus. And then Jesus says to them, verse 17, he says, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. It's interesting because Jesus says, uses these words, give back. To Caesar what is Caesar's. If you owe taxes, you pay your taxes. But you give back to God what is God's. That you honor God with what comes through um, your life. And they're trying to trick him, but you can't trick God. They're trying to trick him with their agenda. But listen, you cannot trick God with your agenda. Whatever agenda that you try to come to try to trick God, God cannot be tricked. 
Verse 18 says, Then the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Now, the Sadducees were a group of religious leaders who didn't believe in the resurrection, which is why they are sad, you see. <laughs> You'll never forget that, will you? The Pharisees believed in the resurrection, but the Sadducees didn't. They believed that you lived, and then once you die, that was the end. It was all over from there. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up the offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow, but he also died leaving no child. It was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be since the seven were married to her? They're trying to show how ridiculous the resurrection is so they have this scenario that they think will trap Jesus into saying something that he will regret. Verse 24, Jesus replied, Are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? Remember, these this is the religious leaders. They spent most of their time studying the scriptures. And Jesus says, you think that since you've come up with a scenario that has no answer because you have no answer, you assume that there is no answer. He says, you have underestimated the power of God. Do you know why this is so relevant for us? Do you know why this is so important? Because the reason why some of you Maybe now, maybe at some point in your life, have pushed against the God thing. Or maybe at some point you've pushed against the Jesus thing. Is because you have some questions, and those questions are okay. We're going to talk about that in a minute. But you've assumed that there is no answer to your question, and you have completely underestimated the power of God. You've assumed because you don't have an answer to whatever question that you have, that God doesn't have an answer, that God's not powerful enough. Because when you put God in a box, what you've done is, is you've limited the power that he has over everything in your life as well. Verse 25 says, Then when the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Now, Jesus is not saying that you become an angel when you die. I mean, this is what people say at funerals all the time, don't they? You know, aren't you so glad that they are an angel watching over us? We do not become angels when we die. Jesus is referring to marriage. Just as the angels in heaven do not marry, he says there is no marriage in heaven. That when you die, there is no marriage in heaven. Now, if you are an unhappily married this is really good news for you. You're like, yes, finally. Get rid of the old ball and chain. But if you're happily married, I don't like this verse. I'm like, what? We mean there's no marriage in heaven. You know, this is one of those verses that I don't like. But Jesus, you're, you're misunderstanding the whole point. Then verse 26, he says, now about the dead rising. Have you not read the book of Moses? In the account of the burning bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. This is so amazing. 
Because Jesus takes this verse that is so familiar. Of course they know the book of Moses. But they come up with this question about Moses, what he says about marriage. They think they're going to trick Jesus. Jesus says, okay, you want to use Moses? Let me prove the resurrection by using Moses. And Jesus takes this very familiar passage to them. And he makes an argument for the resurrection. Now, the religious leaders would have had this verse memorized, but because we don't have it memorized, and because of just the, the way that it's translated, we don't quite get the argument that Jesus is making. So let me take you to the verse that he's referencing. This is when Moses confronts the burning bush. It's in Exodus. And here's what happens in Exodus chapter 3. God says to him, do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. See, God says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, not I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It is present tense. So Jesus says, he is not the God of the dead. But of the living, you are badly mistaken. He blows a hole into their argument and makes a reason to believe in the resurrection right here. Then it says, one of the leaders of the law came and heard them debating, noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer. That this guy is probably a Pharisee who believed in the resurrection. So he loves the fact that Jesus blew the Sadducees who don't believe in the resurrection out of the water. And he asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? Well, there's 613 commandments in the Old Testament. There's 613 rules that the people had to obey. And so they were always trying to figure out which are the most important ones. I mean, which are the ones we should really pay attention to? Which ones do we not have to pay attention to anymore? Out of the hundreds and hundreds of commands and rules, which is the most important? Jesus says this, the most important one, answered Jesus, is this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is this, to love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Jesus quotes two passages from the Old Testament. The first one's from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. And the Jewish people called this the Shema. And it was because of that first word in the verse, Hear, O Israel. That's what that word stands for. That the Lord our God, He is one. It stood for that. This was like their John 3.16 of the Jewish people. I mean, they knew it. They quoted it. They had it memorized. I don't know if they went to a sporting event, if they held it up. You know, Deuteronomy 6.4. But they quoted it when they got up in the morning. And they quoted it before they would go bed to bed at night. And the second verse that Jesus quotes is Leviticus 19, verse 18. To love your neighbors yourself. And see, the obvious question for everybody is how do we express our love to God? How do we express our love to God? And one of the greatest ways you express your love to God is you love the people that he created. And Jesus simplifies 613 laws into two commands, that you love God and you love people. And then it ends like this. It says, and from then on, no one dared to ask him any more 
questions. Jesus had shut them down. Here's what we do. I think we do the same thing. That we try to play games with God. There are things that we can't explain about God, and so our conclusion is there is no God. There are certain things that we don't understand, so we just write God off. And if we are not careful, we can get stuck in our unresolved questions, and it becomes a barrier to our faith. See, there's a lot of us that have questions about God. We have an issue or a struggle or something that we don't understand. We have the scenario that doesn't make sense to us. And we make these sweeping conclusions about God, and we can conclude that God doesn't exist, or God doesn't love me, or God doesn't care about my situation. For some of you, this is the reason why you resisted Christianity for so long, is because you had a question about God that didn't make sense, and so you have resisted Christianity. For some of you, it's the reason why you resist Christianity today, right now. Maybe it's your questions about the world. You look around the world and you go, why do bad things happen to good people? There is not a person in this room who's not asked that question. Because of bad things that have happened to you or the people that you love or the people in this world. It's like, why is there evil in the world? We turn on the TV and we see stories about abuse and starvation and suffering. And we have these questions of of why does God not do something about the refugee crisis? And we conclude that either there is no God or if there is, he's not a loving God. Maybe your questions are more personal. Maybe there's stuff that you're wrestling with right now. Like why can't I make ends meet? Why wouldn't God want me to pay my bills? Maybe it's your marriage. Your marriage is just barely hanging on. You're like, why why will God not heal my marriage? Why am I still single? Why has God not brought somebody into my life? Why are my friendships at school so hurtful and so damaging to me? And like the people in our story You try to play games with God. You have this if-then scenario with God. If you are really God, then this is what you will do for me. If you really loved me, God, this is how it would turn out. And you've put God in a box. You have made him small because you don't understand something. Or you've concluded that he doesn't exist because you can't explain something. Or you think that he's distant because he hasn't done something that you thought that he should do. Do you remember the story of Job? Job is this character in the Old Testament who had all kinds of things that happened to him. Chronologically, the book of Job actually happens in the early chapters of Genesis. It's one of the first Bible stories that actually happens is the story of Job. And he has all of these things that are taken away from him. And he spends almost the entire book asking questions with God. God, why would you do this? Why would you allow this? And then finally in Job 38, God answers him. He answers his question. But not with answers, but with more questions. To remind Job of how big and powerful God really is. Here's what he says. He says, where were you when I created the earth? 
Tell me, since you know so much. Who decided on its size? Certainly you know that. Who came up with the blueprints and measurements? How was its foundation poured? And who set the cornerstone? And have you ever ordered the morning to get up and told dawn to get to work? Do you know where light comes from and where darkness lives? Have you ever traveled where snow is made? And I love this. Seen the vault where hail is stockpiled? Can you find your way to where lightning is launched or to the place for which the wind blows? And God begins to say, Job, maybe you don't understand everything. Maybe there's things that you don't understand about me because I am bigger and more powerful than you can imagine. See, however complex your questions might be today, God keeps pointing in the same direction. You want to know where you begin with all of your questions? You love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And you love the people that he created. That's where it all begins. You don't want to know what you do with all of these questions? You just start there. That you love God and you love people. The crossing will be 17 years old this year. And we started in a junior high school cafeteria. It's pretty cool. And every Sunday we would come into this junior high school cafeteria and we would set up chairs and stage and sound and lights. And then at the end of the day we would take it down and we'd all go home. Well, these days we start our second campus, our southeast campus. And we have a group of people who show up every single Sunday to set up chairs and stage and sound and lights because we just believe that people matter. We believe they matter. But 17 years ago, when we stood in that junior high school cafeteria setting up, I had no idea that it would lead to all this. I had no idea we would have all this. I had no idea. And these days, we have ministries that are going on every day of every week. We have thousands of people who come onto our campus during the week and go into homes and are doing studies. And I can't even begin to tell you how complex this place is. And the older we get as a church, the more we're drawn to complexity. It's just what happens in churches. That you just get bigger and more complex and you add more things and there's more people. But the reason that we have this sign on our building is to remind us of Jesus' simple words. Jesus trying to remind us how simple it can be. We've had this sign on our building since we opened this campus 12 years ago. It's just to remind us to love God with all your heart, to love him with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, to love your neighbors, yourself. That as we get so complex, Jesus' mission to us is so simple. You just love God, you love people, and you serve others. So here's the bottom line. The bottom line is this. As you wrestle with your most complex questions, rest in God's simple response. You love God, and you love people. You love God, you love people. See, you might be wrestling with some difficult questions right now. 
You might be wrestling with some things in your life. And here's what I would tell you. Keep asking those questions. We have environments that we have created for you where you can ask those questions. God's not afraid of your questions. God's not offended by your questions. But the better question is how do we love God deeper and love people better? See, that's the, that's the better question. How do we love God deeper with our life? Are you going to understand everything? No. So where do you start? You love God with everything that you have. That your life is complex and you have some issues right now that you're dealing with that are complex. What would Jesus say to you? Love people. Love them. The people in your life right now that are causing problems, you love them. Because that's how you love God. I want to pray for you. But I think for some of you, you are ready to make a step towards Jesus. You have resisted him long enough. Let me tell you, if you're going to wait till all your questions are answered, you will never come to him. And I wonder if just the same thing that Jesus said 2,000 years ago would apply to you. Just come follow me. Jesus saying, just come follow me. Just get near me because you'll become like me. The closer you get to me, the more your life will be changed. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for being a God who's not afraid of our questions. You're not turned off or offended by us when we come to you. And God, we confess that for a lot of us, we've tried to put you in a corner. God, we've tried to put you into this box that just kind of fits with our whole worldview and realizing that you are bigger and more powerful than we could ever comprehend. God, I pray right now for people who are taking steps towards Jesus that you would meet them right where they are. God, that you would help them to know that you want to be involved in their life. So thank you for the example that Jesus has given us to love God and love people. And we pray this in his name. Amen.